Good evening. Thanks so much for joining us again. And are, this is class number six. So that means that we have, after this, two more to go. So we have three more classes. And then the following Wednesday will be actually the night of Purim. Will be a Wednesday night. We won't have a class. Everybody will hopefully find a place to hear the Megillah. And, uh, but that means we have three more classes. And there are 10 chapters, so we have to get in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 in three weeks. Tonight, we're only going to do chapter 6. So we'll have to get 7, 8, 9, and 10 into two classes. So we'll, we'll figure that out when we get there. But uh, for now, we're going to live in the moment and, uh, and live in chapter 6, which is just so exciting and, you know, needs... Needs a full hour, as I'm sure every chapter does, except for maybe the last one, because it's only a few verses. But so, uh, <clears throat> so we pick up here in the Megillah where Haman has been invited with Ahasuerus to a feast. Esther has invited both just them to the feast. And Haman is on cloud nine. And as he leaves this feast, he passes Mordechai, and Mordechai still refuses to bow to him. Even though, you know, you think at this point he just give in, but no, he still won't bow. And this angers Hamung in particular. And Hamung goes home and he just lets it all out to his family. And that appears at the end of chapter five. And let's just look at the verses again, because I want to start from there. So at the end of chapter five, it's on the source sheet. It says, but Haman restrained himself upon seeing Mordechai and he came home. And he sent and brought his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Hamag recounted to them the glory of his riches and the multitude of his sons, all the ways that the king had promoted him and that he had exalted him over the princes and the king's servants. Hamag is saying all the things that he has. Some commentaries say he was just trying to, you know, he was so mad and so upset. He was trying to make himself feel better. So he started talking about all the things that he has, which is actually, that's a good trait, you know, when to focus on the good things. He was almost there. He was almost able to fo focus on the good things. The problem is that he's building up to what he doesn't have. So he says, I have this and I have that. He has glory and riches and sons and great position and servants. And Haman said in verse 12, Esther did not even bring anyone to the party that she made except me and the king. And tomorrow too, I'm invited her with the king. What could be better? Top of the world. And then he says, but all this is worth nothing to me. Every time I see Mordechai, the Jew, sitting in the king's gate, sitting, not standing, alive, not dead. Every time I see Mordechai, the words, none of this is worth anything to me. Can you imagine? He has so much. He has everything in the world. And just one little thing is ruining it for him. So Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said, let them make a gallows 50 cubits high. And in the morning, say to the king that they should hang Mordechai on it and go to the king to the banquet joyfully. So the recommendation of his wife and his friends is make a gallows, go to the king and get permission to hang Mordechai. Even though earlier Haman didn't want to do that, he didn't want to kill Mordechai on his own. He feels that things have changed. And... Now there's reason to do so. It's acceptable to do so. It wouldn't be an embarrassment to him to do so. And that is the advice that he is given. 
Now, there is a passage in the Talmud which is very enigmatic, very difficult to understand. The Gemara, the Talmud asks in Tractate Chulin, it asks, and it's there on the source sheet, from where in the Torah can one find an allusion to Haman? Haman mina Torah minayim. Where is there an allusion in the Torah to Haman? It asks about Mordechai, it asks about Esther, it asks about Moshe, Moses, doesn't ask about anybody else. So commentaries discuss why it's asking about these people in particular. I just want to focus right now on Haman. Why? Where in the Torah is there an allusion to Haman? And the Gemara, the Talmud says something very strange. The Talmud says, the allusion is in the verse, Hamin Ha'etz, when God learns, when God sees that Adam has eaten from the Eitz Hadas, the tree of knowledge, God starts a conversation with Adam. He says, Hamin Ha'etz, from the tree that I told you not to eat, have you eaten? And the letters of Hamin are He Mem Nun, which are the same letters as Haman. So the Gemara says, there's the hint. There is an allusion to Haman in the Torah. Now, I should just note, it's not the only place in the Torah where those letters appear together, He Mem Nun. There was something in the desert called Mana, the Man. And it's also spelled He Mem Nun. It appears a number of times in the Torah in that fashion. But that's not where we get the hint from. It's specifically from this verse. Hamin Ha'etz, from, from the tree that I told you not to eat, have you eaten? So everybody wonders, what is this talking about? How is this an illusion? How is this hinting to Haman? What does this have anything to do with Haman? So there are many, many different explanations. I wanted to share one with you that relates to this little episode with Haman. Rabbi Shalom Shwadron suggests that there is something in common between Adam and Haman. And that is, God says to, to Adam, from all the fruits of the garden you can eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you should not eat. And what does Adam do? He and Chava, Eve, they eat from the tree of knowledge. He had everything. He had everything in the garden. It was all available to him. The one thing that he can't have, that's what he needs. That's what he has to take from. And that was the cause of his downfall, so to speak. The beginning of the end, right? For, for Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree of knowledge, from the eight sadas, and history has changed forever. They had everything. They could have eaten from any of the trees. There was so much to choose from. But the one thing that they can't have, that's what, they, that's what bothers them. That's what they need. And that was the same thing with Haman. Haman has everything. He has everything. Look at that. He has power. He has children. He has riches. He has everything. But it's worth nothing to him because there's one thing that he doesn't have. And that is the beginning of the end for Haman. Because really, it's not until this moment where he turns around and he goes home and he storms in and he's all upset and he gets the advice to build a gallows to hang Mordechai. And that is going to be his undoing. If he would have left Mordechai alone at this moment, everything could have been different. History could have been different. The one thing, and that turns everything around for him. And there's actually another hint to God's name in those words that mark the turning point for Haman. Because like we mentioned last week, we don't find God's name explicitly anywhere in the Megillah. 
But we do find in acrostic form at the beginning of certain phrases, the end of certain phrases, and again in the words that where Haman says, but all this is nothing to me, which is the beginning of his undoing, right there is God's name also. It's spelling acrostic actually backwards in the, in the words, I put it in the, in the, in the source sheet, it's on verse 13 there. All of this is nothing. And if you take the last letters of those words, spelled backwards, forward, since we're coming from the English side, it says, Li ends in Yud, Shoveh ends in Hey, Einenu ends in Vav, and Ze ends in Hey. So again, right at that turning point for Haman, we have this hint to God's name, where God is guiding events over here. And, uh, and this marks an important turning point in the story. Okay. So that's, uh, that's Haman, he goes and he builds the gallows, and then he's going to go and ask permission from Ahasuerus to hang Mordechai. So we go on to chapter six, and chapter six opens that on that night, the king's sleep was disturbed. On that night, the king's sleep was disturbed. The king couldn't sleep. Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. And he ordered to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Can't sleep. So he asks for a bedtime story to help him fall asleep. That's the most simple way to read this verse. Can't sleep. You know, you have someone read to you until you fall asleep. And that's what he did. And that's how actually Rashi comments. If it was just he was looking, trying, he needed help falling asleep. And they read from this book. And verse 2 says it was found written in this chronicles that Mordechai had reported about Big Sung and Seresh, two chamberlains, the king of the guards of the threshold, who had sought to lay a hand on King Ahasuerus. So they discover that Mordechai had saved Ahasuerus's life. That's what they read about. Now, the this just to refresh ourselves i put on the sheet let's just read those verses again back in chapter two where mordechai actually does save the king's life and we'll we'll work off of that to understand what's going on over here so back in chapter two right there on the source sheet it says in those days when mordechai was sitting in the king's gate big son and sarish two of the king's chamberlains the guards of the threshold became angry and sought to lay a hand on king ahasuerus and the matter became known to Mordechai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in Mordechai's name. Esther did not take the credit for herself. Rather, it came from Mordechai. She reported it in Mordechai's name, and the matter was investigating and found to be so, and they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the diary that was read before the king. So there it is. It's written down. Mordechai was not rewarded at the time. Now, as things <clears throat> seem to be in dire straits, this king can't sleep, and he calls Mordechai, he calls for his book of chronicles to be read, and lo and behold, they read about how Mordechai had saved the king's life. Now, the Gemara, the Talmud, comments over here the following. On that night, the sleep of the king was disturbed. Now, there is an idea that whenever the Megillah uses the word Hamelech, the king, but doesn't say the king Ahasuerus, as it does many times. Whenever it says the king, it's also an allusion to 
the king of kings, the Almighty. And so the Talmud over here comments, on that night, the sleep of the king was disturbed. Rabbi Tanchum said, the sleep of the king of the universe, the Holy One, blessed be he, was disturbed. Now, God doesn't sleep, right? God doesn't sleep. So we have to understand what this, what this, what this means. But besides for the simple reading that the king Ahasuerus' sleep was disturbed, there's also an idea that the king of kings' sleep was disturbed. And that's why some have the custom when they read this verse in the Megillah, that they read it and they say the word Hamelech, similar to the way that we say it at the beginning of the davening of the tefillah on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So this is how my father did it. And this is how I do it. My father does it, I should say, that you say, because it's also the, the king of kings is, is being awoken. Now is when things really start to turn. That's what this, this piece of the, in, the, in the Gemara is telling us. So the Midrash actually elaborates on this idea, because as I said, God doesn't sleep. And it's a verse in Tehillim, in Psalms, that God doesn't sleep. On the other hand, that's what it says in chapter 121 of Tehillim. On the other hand, there's another verse in, uh, in Tehillim 44 that says, Awaking, why do you sleep, God? And what does the psalmist mean by that? What does King David mean by that? Awaken. So the Midrash explains that when the Jewish people are following in the ways of God, then God is awoken. And when the Jewish people are not, so then God, so to speak, he, he's, he moves you know, away. He, 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 he departs. He, he hides from us as if he's sleeping. And at this moment is the turning point. They've, they're active. The Jewish people at this point are, are active in prayer and in repentance and in fasting. And God is awoken to their, to their cries. And here begins a turning point. So this is, if we understand again, the allusion to God in this verse. The simple understanding is that it refers to Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. So the Talmud continues and it says, Rava said, this should be understood literally, the sleep of King Ahasuerus was disturbed. Now, why couldn't he sleep? So the Gemara has an explanation. The Gemara says, a thought occurred to him. And he said to himself, as he's trying to sleep, right? He's lying in bed. He says, what is this before us that Esther has invited Haman? Why is Esther inviting Haman? It's a question that we discussed at length last week. But Ahasuerus had the same question. Why is Esther inviting Haman to this feast? Perhaps, he says, they are conspiring against me to kill me. He then said, if this is so, if there's really a conspiracy against me, wouldn't somebody tell me about it? Is there no man who loves me and would inform me of this conspiracy? He then said again to himself, Perhaps there is some man who has done a favor for me and I have not properly rewarded him. And due to that reason, people refrained from revealing to me information regarding plots. So he was, he was struggling to understand. He said, maybe they're plotting against me, but if they're plotting against me, somebody would have told me. Maybe nobody's telling me because the last time somebody plotted, maybe in the past, someone plotted against me, someone saved me and wasn't properly rewarded. So he calls for 
the book of records, the book of Chronicles, with the intention of not necessarily looking for Mordechai, but for looking for someone that deserved to be rewarded that wasn't rewarded. And that's when it says he commanded the book of remembrance of the Chronicles to be brought. So that's one reason. So far we have, according to Rashi, he just couldn't sleep. He said, you know, bring me something to read. According to the Gemara over here, the Talmud saying he didn't just want, you know, bedtime reading, a bedtime story. He was looking for something. He was looking for who, maybe is there someone out there who saved my life and I didn't properly reward. The, uh, there are other commentaries, the Vilna Gaon, Yosef Lekach, they understand that he also was bothered, you know, what's going on with Esther? She obviously has something major to ask me, something significant. We figure that out by now. She came into the throne room risking her life. She invited me to this feast and he really wants to know what is it that she wants because she hasn't told him yet. So he's wondering, and he says she, she must have something big to ask. Now, she doesn't need anything. She's the queen. She has everything. So she must want to ask on behalf of someone else. On the other hand, she doesn't have anyone. You know, every time he asked her who she is, she says, I don't have a family. Right? That's how she gets away with saying, she said she, she, she was picked up. She was, a, she was a baby. Mordechai found her. Mordechai raised her. She doesn't know who her parents are. That's what she's been telling the king. So she doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know who her, who her nation is. So who does she have that she would be asking for? There's only one person that she could possibly be asking for. Mordechai, the guy that raised her. She must want something for Mordechai. So that's why he says to bring the book of Chronicles. He says there must be something that Mordechai deserves that he didn't get. So according to this, he actually was looking for Mordechai in the books. He was looking up in the books, you know, is there something that Mordechai deserves that Mordechai didn't get? And he intended to, to look for that, according to this interpretation. Now, he, now, why is he looking? Because he's nervous that Esther is going to ask for something big. And he wants to be able to tell Esther, by the time he shows up at the feast, oh, you Mordechai, you think he deserves a reward? I already took care of it. Don't worry, he already got his reward. And then whenever she asks for it, he doesn't have to give because he's already taken care of it. So he wants to see if Mordechai deserved a reward. Maybe he got the reward already. If he didn't, I'll take care of it before we get to the feast tomorrow. That way, when she actually asks me for something for him, I'll say, oh, it's, already, it's already taken care of. Now, um, Now there was one other, one other understanding that we offered way back, that uh, that when we discussed this this chapter, this 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 passage where Mordechai saves his life and Esther has it has reports it to the king. So there was one interpretation that we mentioned, which was that when Esther told it to the king, she actually didn't tell it in the name of Mordechai. She told it in the name of herself. And, but when she had it written down, she made sure that the chronicler wrote it in the name of Mordechai. And the Mano Salevi quotes that interpretation. Again, he's the one who mentioned it earlier. And if you understand that way, we can understand the words in verse two here, it was found written. 
as if like it was just by surprise. They weren't expecting this because they didn't know that Mordechai had been the one that saved the king because Esther had not reported it in the name of Mordechai. Um, and now they found it. It was in the name of Mordechai. And now they felt the need to, to, uh, to reward Mordechai for this. Um, now, I guess one other, not to confuse us too much, but one other off explanation we offered, but I just, we have to mention it because it's going to come up again, is brought by the Malbim. And you may remember, after Mordechai saves the king's life, Haman rises to power. And the Malbim drew a connection between those two events. He said that Ahasuerus lost track of who had saved his life. And he wanted to reward the person. So he ended up, he remembered that he knew Esther was involved. And he's like, how did Esther get to be the queen? Well, Haman, who was Memuchan, had advised him to take a new queen. So he credited Haman with saving him because Haman had gotten him Esther, who had saved his life. But not only that, says the Malbim, the Malbim quoted from the Abarbanel, who says that Haman actually took credit for saving the king's life. And that was also part of how he rose to power. Because Arashverosh forgot who it was. Someone said, oh, yeah, it was me. Don't worry. Right. And he may have even erased it from the, the general chronicles. So there were there over here, the verse specifically refers to um, the Sefer Azichronos Divrei Hayamim. In the, in the English, it says it was the book of records, the Chronicles. So there, there's different descriptions in the Megillah of different books of Chronicles. And the, the commentaries understand there's two types. There were two books. There was one like general ledger and one more specific. And this was the more specific one. So, it, so it's entirely possible that in the more general one, Haman actually erased that and put his name in instead. But this one was the more specific one. This one was, uh, was the king's personal one. This one he wasn't able to, to fix. So this one still had Mordechai's name in it. And now it's opened up. Ahasuerus opens it. And lo and behold, it wasn't Haman who saved his life. It was, Ach it was, it was Mordechai. Now, according to that approach, the, already things are changing right now because now Ahasuerus is mad at Haman already now because he realizes that Haman tricked him and all the honor that he gave to Haman really should have gone to Mordechai. So according to the Malbim, at this point already, Haman is in deep, deep trouble. Um, and already the tide has really turned on him. That's only in that approach. If we understand that Haman had tricked him and convinced him that he had saved him and now he discovered that he wasn't, then already at this moment, Haman is in trouble. Most commentaries don't understand that way. Most understand that, no, he never took credit for it. But now, either way, he discovers that Mordechai saved his life. He wants to, he needs to reward Mordechai. So verse three says, um, and the king said, what honor and greatness was done to Mordechai on that account? And the king's servants who, who ministered before him said, nothing was done for him. So the ledger, you know, it didn't say anything was, had, had been done for him. He wasn't yet rewarded. Now, Ahasuerus, again, according to one of the ways that we said it, at least, was looking to reward Mordechai because he wanted to be able to show up to the feast and tell Esther 
that I already awarded him. You don't have to ask for anything. He thought that Esther was going to ask for a reward for Mordechai. He reward her and he'd be able to say, I already took care of it. So that's why first he asks, well, what was done for him? Uh, was honor done for him? Was greatness? Certainly it would have to be something great, you know, that, he, that he'd be deserving. Did we do anything great for him? And they said, no, 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 we didn't do anything for him. Sorry, we, we owe him still. Also, alternatively, if we understand that Ahasuerus is looking, is, is looking to see if there was anyone who he didn't yet reward because he feels his life is at risk here. He needs, he says, they're plotting against me. There must be someone who knows something who can save my life, but they're not saying because I haven't rewarded someone. And then they find, yes, indeed, he hasn't rewarded Mordechai. So he needs, he wants to know, did I reward Mordechai? Did I not? It has to be something big because if it wasn't something big and public, then there's no point because the whole point is that somebody will see that I did something for Mordechai and they'll come forward now and try to save me this time and, 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 and reveal the plot against me at this moment. So he wants something that is out in the open and the, and the, they respond, nothing was done for him. Now, verse four, and the king said, who is in the court? Now it's the middle of the night, but he, he could be, he heard someone, but doesn't really, nobody, nobody says that. Who is in the court? Why is he asking who is in the court? The verse goes on. It says, and Haman had come to the outside court of the king's house to petition the king to hang Mordechai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Remember, Haman is in a craze. His family just told him, you gotta hang Mordechai. Just go and do it. Go get permission from the king. Even though it's the middle of the night, he comes and he's going to ask the king. Part of why he comes now is he wants to hang Mordechai in the morning. That's when you hang someone when you want to make an example of them. So that everybody, they, they leave their houses, they wake up in the morning, they come out and they see the, the person hanging. That's how you make an example of someone. So that was Haman's goal here. Now, Hashverosh asks who is in the court as if he's expecting someone. The Midrash teaches us that Ahasuerus actually had a dream about Haman. He had a dream that Haman was trying to kill him. And so he, he, when he asked who was in the court, it was like, is my dream true? And when Haman is there, he's convinced that his dream is indeed true, that Haman wants to, wants to kill him. And that's why Haman is there. Um, so... So he wants to deal with this right now. And the question is, what's the rush, right? He's going to ask now, he's about to ask, you know, what should we do for Mordechai? What's the rush? Why is he sowing such a rush to, de to deal with this? So as we explained, he's in a rush because he wants this to be done before he shows up to the feast tomorrow. Because he wants to be able to tell Esther, I already rewarded Mordechai. Don't ask me for anything. I already rewarded Mordechai. Um, so the king's servants respond in verse five, and the king's servant said to him, behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, let him enter. 
So Haman comes in and Haman entered, verse six, and the king said to him, what should be done to a man whom the king wishes to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? Now, if you compare verse six, the question the king poses, what should be done to a man whom the king wishes to honor? To verse three, where the king said, what honor and greatness was done to Mordechai on that account? There's a little bit of a difference. Originally, he asked what honor and greatness was done. Yikar ugedula. And here, when he speaks to Haman and he says, what should be done for him? He just says, what honor should be done for someone who the king wishes to honor? And the question is, why doesn't he say what honor and greatness? Like he said before. So the Yosef Lekach explains that Ahasuerus didn't really want to give Mordechai a big reward. So he toned it down. He didn't want to give him such a big reward. Maybe he wanted it to be public, whatever it was, so people would know about him. But he, remember, according to, 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 to this approach, according to one approach at least, he just wants to get it done so that when he shows up to Esther tomorrow, he's already rewarded him. So when he asks Haman, what, what, what honor should be done for someone, he doesn't say honor and greatness because he doesn't want Haman to respond with such a great, uh, you know, Haman is his advisor. He's going to listen to his advisor, but he doesn't want Haman to, 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 to offer such a great reward. Now, because he says it that way, because he says what honor, and he doesn't say honor and greatness, so that is what trips up Haman to make him think that he's talking about him. Because if he had said what honor and greatness, well, Haman would say, well, he's not talking about me because I'm already the highest position possible. There's no higher position possible. He must be talking about someone else if he had said greatness because I'm already the highest position. But because he wanted to tone down the reward, he didn't want such a big reward for Mordechai. So he said, what honor? Now on honor, you know, Haman can still get more honor. So there Haman decides, oh, maybe he, he must be talking about me. And therefore Haman's response will be about himself. And that's why he thinks that the king is talking about him. So it's unbelievable because here, according to this, you have that the, the king, Ahasuerus, he's just trying to, to get Mordechai something, you know, just to be, you know, fulfill his obligation to him. He doesn't really want to give him anything too big. You have Morde you have Muhammad coming and he's showing up with the intent to get Mordechai hung, right? So nobody really has Mordechai's best interests here. Ahasuerus wants to give him like the most simple reward. Haman wants Mordechai to be hung. And then they come together and what comes out is going to be you know, just the greatest honor for Mordechai, which is going to be just a very important turning point for the Jewish people in this story. If you look actually at source four, where I quoted the, the Talmud Megillah, it said in that verse, verse four, it said that, he, that Haman had come to hang Mordechai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. For him. For who? So, for, for, uh, for Mordechai, right? But the Talmud says that also you can read it for himself. Although he didn't know 
that he had prepared it for himself. He had, in fact, prepared the gallows for himself. And it's not just that point. Everything that Haman does, he's preparing for himself for his own end. If we understand that Haman was Memuchan, and it was he, the, he was the one who got rid of Vashti, who advised Ahasuerus to get rid of Vashti. So again, that was also preparing his end, right? That was preparing for his own end because that was putting Esther into power. And every move that, 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 that Haman makes is really a step towards his, his own destruction. So he's preparing his own gallows throughout the story. Um, now, now the, the, the Manos Halevi quotes um, this Midrash that, that Ahasuerus had a dream about Haman trying to come and kill him. And the way that he presents this is just very interesting. He says that the, and part of this is maybe explicit in the Midrash, some of it is his own elaboration, that he was, he couldn't sleep, right? Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. So he asked them to read from the book of Chronicles. They read that there was Mordechai had saved him and hadn't been rewarded. So he said, okay, great. That's, that's what I need to do. I need to reward Mordechai. We'll take care of it in the morning. And he fell back asleep. And then, because otherwise, when did he have this dream exactly about Haman? If he was, if he was, uh, if he couldn't sleep because he was worried about all these things, when did he dream about Haman? So the Midrash says he did. After that, he had, his nerves were calmed. He settled down. And then he had a dream about Haman coming to kill him. And then he, uh, he awoke. And indeed, Haman was, was there. Okay, so, so what does Haman say? Um, what does Haman say is going to be the reward for Mordechai? So verse seven, and Haman said to the king, a man whom the king wishes to honor, let them bring the royal raiment, the royal garment that the king wore and the horse that the king rode upon, and the royal crown should be placed on his head. So Haman, remember, he thinks it's talking about him. And what else can he have? What else is left for him? He's already the prime minister. He has, he's, he's second in command. He has all the power. People bow to him. He's rich. What could he ask for? There's only one thing that he doesn't have, which is he's not the king. So his idea is, let me be king for a day. Let me, let them bring the royal garments the king wore on the horse that the king rode upon and the royal crown should be placed on his head. There's actually a dispute among the commentaries if it's on the horse's head or on, the, on his head. If you read the verse, it's not clear. Um, apparently there was like some way to, to honor someone by putting the, the crown of the previous king on the horse's head or something like that. And then verse nine, let the raiment and the horse be delivered into the hand of one of the king's most noble princes and let them dress the man whom the king wishes to honor and let them parade him on the horse in the city square and announce before him, so shall be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. Now, Haman was a cunning fellow and he's not just throwing this out there. Again, Ahasuerus says, what should be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor? 
So Helmung responds, the ultimate honor is just to let people know that the king wishes to honor this person. That's the way to honor someone. That itself is the greatest honor. To be honored by the king, that's the greatest honor. So that's why he responds in verse 7, a man whom the king wishes to honor, that's, that's the greatest honor. Now, how are we going to do that? How will we let everybody know that, there's, that, that this is a man whom the king wishes to honor? Oh, I'll tell you. You dress him up like the king and you ride him around, around on the horse of the king. And, uh, and then you announce that this is what is done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. The Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabetz, the Mano Salevi, writes, he quotes from an earlier source that there was a custom among the Persians of that time that somebody who was wearing the royal garbs and riding the royal horse could actually conduct himself like the king, was given certain power. If you, if you dressed like the king and you rode the king's horse and you had the king's crown, then at that moment you had the power of the king. Now I'm certain you didn't have more power than the king, but you were given certain powers. So Haman wanted to take advantage of this. He said, okay, Ahasuerus wants to reward me. Now, what do I want more than anything? I want, I want Mordechai dead more than anything. So Haman realized that there was an opportunity here. When the king asks him, what should be done to a man whom the king wishes to honor? And Haman said, obviously he's talking about me. Now I came to ask Ahasuerus to hang Mordechai, but I could do one better. I'll let him give me the power and then I'll be able to hang Mordechai without his permission. So he says, dress me, dress that, this guy that you want to honor, dress him up as the king. And then I'll be, you know, I'll be good to go. I'll be able to then do as I please and get Mordechai hung. Now, of course, it doesn't work out that way. And the king responds in verse 10. And the king said to Haman, hurry Take the raiment and the horse as you have spoken and do so to Mordechai the Jew who sits in the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that you have spoken. Now, of course, this shook Haman's world. This is the last thing in the world that he wants to hear. He had come to try to hang Mordechai. And he thought that he was about to be rewarded with the king's garbs, the king's robes, and the king's power and the ability to hang Mordechai himself to have that kind of power. And instead, the king says, go and do everything that you said to Mordechai. The Talmud comments over here on the source sheet, do so to Mordechai. Haman said, he was trying to evade this. He knew exactly who Ahasuerus was talking about. But he said, oh, who is Mordechai? So Ahasuerus said to him, Mordechai the Jew. So that's why in the verse it says, do this to Mordechai the Jew. So Haman said, well, there are lots of Jews named Mordechai. So Ahasuerus said, the one who sits in the king's gate. There's only one who sits in the king's gate. So that's the verse that do so to Mordechai, the Jew who sits in the king's gate. And then the Talmud says, then, then the king says, let nothing fail of all that you have spoken. You know, do everything that you said. What's that adding? Of course, what you already said, do so. So what is that adding? So the Talmud says that Haman said, why award him with such a great honor? It would be enough to receive one village or one river. Just, you don't need so much. 
give him a village, you know, give him a village for tax for collecting or whatever, give him money, give him the last thing at Mordechai, excuse me, the last thing Haman wanted was to was for Mordechai to have public honor. So he said, oh, you know, give him a village somewhere or give him a, a river that he could charge taxes to cross the river on the ferry or something like that. So, so Ahasuerus says, okay, great idea. You know, let's do that too. We'll throw that in also. So that's the end of the verse. Let nothing fail of all that you have spoken, meaning there was something more that he had said than what we see in the verse. And that's, that's how the Talmud interprets it. So Haman has no choice. If the king says to do it, he's got to do it. So it says in verse 11, and Haman took the raiment, the garments, and the horse, and he dressed Mordechai and paraded him in the city square, and he announced before him, so shall be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. So he does exactly as the king said. He rides him around. So shall be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. And then verse 12. Um, oh, I should just add that the king specifically wanted Haman to do this. First of all, it's a, the greatest honor. But also, when if this way, if Esther would ask, remember, he wants to make sure that Mordechai has been rewarded so that when Esther asks for something for Mordechai, it's already taken care of. So this way, um, if, uh, if Esther would ask for something, something great for Mordechai, um, so Haman would be there at the feast and he'd be able to say, no, he already, uh, he, he already got a great reward. And Ahasuerus could say, I gave him the greatest honor because I even had Haman ride him around. So this was going to be the greatest honor. And this way, Esther wouldn't be able to ask for anything else for Mordechai. The king would be all set when he arrived at the feast with, with Esther and Haman in this way. So verse 12 says, and Mordechai returned to the king's gate and Haman rushed home mourning and with his head covered. So it's a strange verse. Mordechai returned to the king's gate. What's the significance of that? Haman rushed home. Why is he mourning? Why is his head covered? So it could be he's just sad and embarrassed. The Talmud says the following. It says that as Haman was taking Mordechai along in the street of Haman's house, Haman's daughter was standing on the roof and saw the spectacle. She thought to herself that the one who is riding on the horse must be her father, and the one walking before him must be Mordechai. She just assumed that she knew that Haman had gone to the house, to, to, to the king, to ask permission to hang Mordechai. It's now the next morning, and, uh, and they're riding Mordechai around. But she just assumed that if somebody was getting great honor, it would be her father. And if somebody was leading him, it was probably Mordechai, who Haman had been after. Furthermore, she didn't recognize her father because, well, why didn't she recognize his voice if he's calling out, this is the man whom the king wishes to honor? So it's possible, the commentaries say, that he had lost his voice. You know, he had been calling this out along all the streets, and he lost his voice. And furthermore, um, Furthermore, he was very embarrassed and he was, he had his head down. So she couldn't see who was leading the horse and she couldn't, and, and Mordechai who was on the horse also had his head down because Mordechai was weakened from fasting. He had been fasting for 
already this is, uh, you know, again, either he took a break or he didn't take a break, but basically fasting for now three nights and two days. And he was weak. And so he also had his head down. And so she didn't recognize who was who. So she thought that it was Mordechai leading the horse and Haman on the horse. And she took a chamber pot and she cast its contents onto the head of what she thought was Mordechai, but was in fact her father. And it says that when, when Haman raised his eyes, she saw that it was in fact her father that she had poured, poured the bucket of dung on. And she was very upset and she fell from the roof and she died. And that's why it says that Mordechai returned to the king's gate. And Rav Sheshet said, this means he returned to his sackcloth and his fasting, meaning he was still in the middle of fasting. That's why he was weak. That's why he had his head down. That's why she didn't recognize him. And Haman hastened his house mourning and having his head covered. He was mourning because his daughter had just committed suicide or fallen to her death. And he had his head covered because his head had been covered in what she had poured on his head. So that's how the Talmud interprets that passage, that verse. Okay, now we come to a very, very important verse. And that is verse 13. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and to all his friends, all they had befallen him, and his wise men, and Zeresh, sorry, and his wise men and Zeresh's wife said to him. So he recounts to them all that's gone on, and they say to him the following. They say, if Mordechai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish stock, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. So Haman comes home, and he recounts them what happened. And they feel the need to say, oh, you're, you're finished. So it sounds like Haman didn't think he was finished. They kind of had to convince him. So the Malbum explains that Haman, he realized they'd be very upset about what had happened. You know, he had gone to hang Mordechai. He had been leading Mordechai through the streets. He came to reassure them. He said, don't worry, it's not over yet. This just happened. It happens to be that, right? Because he would he didn't see the hand of God here. It just so happens that Mordechai hadn't been rewarded yet, and he was deserving of a reward. So he got a reward. Okay, now he got his reward. Now he's done. Now I'll go back to the king. Now that he's had his reward, and I'll deal with him. No problem. It's going to be okay. He was planning to reassure his family. It's going to be okay. I'll still be able to take care of Mordechai. And the family, the, his wife, his advisors, his friends, they respond and they say that we don't think this is happenstance like you. It didn't just happen this way. This is the nation that God protects. This is the nation that God has protected throughout all of history. And it's not just happenstance. First of all, they told him two things. They said, first of all, if Mordechai, before whom you have begun to fall, you have begun to fall before him. And, and the way the Malbim explains it is, you have begun to fall on your own without him even doing anything other than praying and fasting. But you, you're falling from your own actions, from your own choices. And so, so 
you have begun to fall, you yourself, through your own actions. And, and he hasn't even had to do anything, taking any, any actual material, physical efforts against you. And yet you are already falling before him. And that's the first sign that things, you know, that, that this is God, God control, redirecting events here. You went there to hang him, right? You built a gallows for him. And, and you went and it all backfired because in the end, you ended up leading him around on the horse without any effort of his own. This is the fact that, that your own actions are turning against you is the first sign that, that God is, his God is protecting him. And furthermore, that they said that you're falling before him. He hasn't fallen yet. You're falling first. Your trajectory is more downwards than his is. And, uh, and they said, therefore, you're not going to be able to defeat him unless you, unless there's only one way, they said. The only way is if you lower yourself. If you lower yourself, then Mordechai might think that he's one. And if he thinks that he's one, he might stop praying and he might stop fasting and he might stop repenting. And that's our only chance. If he gets too confident, if he gets too cocky, and that is our only, our only chance. But of course, that's actually not what happened because we just read in the previous verse and Mordechai returned to the king's gate. And the Talmud said he returned to his sackcloth and his fasting. So even though he had just achieved this, this victory over Haman, but he's still praying. He doesn't feel that it's over. And so it's fascinating because the, the family of Haman here in the middle of the story recognizes the hand of God in all that's going on. And they note it. And uh, it's interesting when we, when we look at this in the context, I didn't put it on the source sheet, but there's a passage in the Gemara and the Talmud at the beginning of where it discusses the Purim story, different rabbis of the Talmud quote different verses and kind of say different things to introduce the story of the Megillah. And Rabbi Yochanan quotes a verse in Tehillim chapter 98 that says that um, God's kindness and faith towards the Jewish people is remembered. All of the people of the land saw the, the, the salvation from our God. And the Talmud, Rabbi Yochanan comments, when did all the people of the land see the salvation of our God? In the days of Mordechai and Esther. And when it says all the people of the land, it means Jews and non-Jews alike. That Jews and non-Jews alike were able to see God's salvation in this story. And this is at least the first, this is where we see it, at least the first place where we see it. Even the non-Jews, even the family of Haman is recognizing at this point, at this moment, God's salvation. And then the final verse in the chapter reads, while they were still talking to him, the king's chamberlains arrived and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared for him. So there's a number of important words in this verse that we might just gloss over if we weren't paying close attention. First of all, they hastened to bring him. What's the rush? Why are they rushing Haman? So Esther knows about this whole thing with the horse and everything and Haman Haman's decline and his trajectory. And she knows she's about to 
to blow his cover. And we'll talk about it next week, but she's about to try at least to get Haman taken down. She is worried that Haman, Haman's very powerful. He also has a powerful family and he has children. His sons are in charge of different provinces. And if they find out that what's going on with Haman, that Haman is on the decline, then they might mount a rebellion before before she has a chance to take down Haman. So she wants Haman back at the feast right away. So when they hasten to bring him, that's at Esther's orders. So Haman doesn't have any time to get word out about what's going on to make alternate plans. But it also, the verse makes sure to say, while they were still talking to him. Why is that significant? While they were still talking, his family is talking to Haman. And the verse is, while they were still talking to him, the Chamberlains come, to whisk him away. So there are two ideas here. First of all, his family's telling him, Haman, you gotta give this up. You have no chance. You have no chance. This is, if God, Mordechai has God on his side. So if they had a chance to finish talking to him, who knows, he may have run away. He may have said, you're right. I gotta give up. I gotta run away. But he didn't have a chance because they were still talking to him when the Chamberlains arrived. But furthermore, one other point is that there's an argument going on here. Back and forth. They're saying, don't fight him. You have to stop Haman. Haman says, no, no, I'm still going to get him. I'm going to hang him. There's the, I'll get him. And they say, no. And he says, yes. And while they were still talking to him, the Chamberlains arrived. And they hear this conversation. And from the conversation, they understand what the point of the gallows that Haman has built is, what that's for, and they understand that Haman still plans to hang Mordechai. And that's significant because when we see the next chapter, after Esther reveals all that's going on to Ahasuerus, and Ahasuerus is figure, trying to figure out what to do with Haman, so there's a, one of his chamberlains is there, his name is Charvona, and Charvona says, there's the gallows that Haman prepared for Mordechai. Let's hang him on there. How does he know that Haman had prepared that gallows for Mordechai? How does he know? How does he know what it's for? Haman never had a chance to say. The answer is, while they were still talking to him, the king's chamberlains arrived. They heard the conversation. They heard Haman saying, I'm going to hang Mordechai. I won't be stopped. You know, it's almost like that the, the villain when he reveals his plans, right? But he did. He was, he, was, uh, he was talking to his family and arguing with them and trying to convince them that he, he could still go through with this. And that's how Charvona knew what that, what that gallows was there for. And that was very important because that is going to, if that gallows isn't there, then as we'll discuss next week, it's not clear what would happen to Haman. Part of what causes Ahasuerus to turn against Haman is that Haman was trying to hang Mordechai. And that is very upsetting. Mordechai had saved the king's life. And not only that, but they're able to exact swift punishment against Haman because the gallows is there. So all of this, Haman's building of the gallows, is part of his undoing. And it's because they were still talking to him when the chamberlains arrived that part of this, that this plot was known, and that ultimately leads in part to 
Haman's own hanging. Okay, so we'll uh, pick that up next time with chapter seven, where Esther reveals her plans and Hamon finally will meet his end. Thank you very much. Thank you, Yashikawa. Beautiful. Yes,